Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, teach a class, and hopefully, eventually, to get a job. So last week I was sick, and I recorded an episode while I was sick, and uh, I just had the feeling that you could tell that it was dripping with some sort of really awful cold. Uh, and so I, I sat on it. Maybe later I'll release it as like a hidden episode or the lost episode. Don't don't worry. I don't think that you uh, missed a lot. Um, in the past two weeks, I've kind of been wrestling with some things. I've been dealing with writer's block on my dissertation. I've been, you know, trying to figure out how to read and work and be inspired. And it, it just with the, you know, the dying light of October, it, it doesn't feel particularly inspiring right now. So that's what I'm trying to to work through. Um, but this episode, we're going to be talking about something big. We're going to be combining uh, what I would have talked about last episode and what I'm talking about this episode in a discussion of 19th century globalization. Now, this is really important because we think today that a lot of the problems that we're facing politically are novel. Um, we think uh, that they're kind of the first time that people have wrestled with this in, 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 in modern history. And a lot of the ways that, that politics is, is breaking apart right now, generating factions that are weird or novel, is through responses to this big process that we call globalization. A lot of things are being globalized. We have a global information exchange. I can, you know, go to my computer in California and watch TV from Britain or Korea or India or Myanmar. Uh, we also have a global exchange of goods. The stuff that we eat and wear and use is made in a bunch of different places from raw materials that come from a bunch of different places. My t-shirt is probably made from Egyptian cotton that is spun probably somewhere in Southeast Asia and made by a company headquartered probably in the United States. And this is true of many of our manufactured goods and a lot of our food. The yogurt that I eat today is probably made from milk from cows in California, but the, you know, the, the, the veggies that I eat it might come from further afield. And of course, a really, really big point that is causing political divisions right now is not just globalization of manufacturing, not just globalization of information, it's globalization of people. You know, if you read the news today or look through Twitter uh, uh, on this day, uh, October 21st, which is a Sunday, one of the big viral things that is floating around is a image of a migrant caravan crossing um, into Mexico. Uh, and it's not a caravan. It's 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 kind of looks like a parade. Uh, supposedly, there's people in the thousands. Uh, 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 you can it, it, it looks like, you know, a street filled with people going back and forth all the, as far as you can see. And for some people, this is disturbing because they imagine it as a army of 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 non-americans coming up to invade america and do something political other people it's disturbing because it it represents a a, a great um humanitarian crisis that uh is you know represented by people getting so uncomfortable with their lives that they march literally from central america all the way up to north america but either way this image has become politically salient. 
And this trio of globalization, of global markets for information, global markets for goods, and global movements of people, is not peculiar to the late 20th century. In fact, the 19th century was an incredibly globalized period of time. So to talk about that, we're going to look at two different related processes. The first, we're going to be looking at the movement of people, and then we're going to be looking at the movement of goods. I could also talk about global financial movements, which are equally important, but but that's a lot harder to tie into the central unifying theme of this course, which is how the modern world is based on a new kind of relationship to the environment. So let's start out with the global migration of people. And let's start here with something we've already talked about, the humble potato. Now, remember when we talked all those weeks ago about the Colombian exchange, we mentioned that the potato was one of the key goods that changed the world. The potato uh, is originally an Andean food, um, but it moved slowly into Europe and then into Asia uh, with the Colombian exchange. And why the, the potato is so good is that you can grow it on what we call marginal soils. You can grow it, you know, if you, if you have rice or wheat or corn, you pretty much grow that in the same kind of places, flatlands with access to a lot of water. Potatoes, you don't need flatlands. They're tubers. You can grow them in a back garden with like not a lot of soil, or you can even grow them on hills. And potatoes are really nutritious. They are the most nutritious staple food of any of the staple foods uh, on earth. Uh, if you eat potatoes and a little bit of milk, which provide the vitamin D and vitamin A that potatoes do not provide, you don't need to eat anything else. Literally nothing else. You can survive your entire life, birth to death, without malnutrition if you eat potatoes and a little bit of milk every meal, every single day. And if you think that sounds improbable, there are probably people in your ancestry who did that, especially depending on where you are from. If your name like me is Brendan uh, and you have some sort of Celtic ancestry in you, probably a good chance that a lot of your ancestors survived on potatoes. Now, potatoes did something weird to the population of Eurasia. Nun and Chan, we talked before, estimated that potatoes were a key driver of urbanization. And this is the first part of the population movement story that we're going to tell. Now, because people were able to grow more food with less effort on more marginal lands, you got people being able to move away from farmland. This combined with new forms of agriculture that allowed for greater intensity of, of production meant that you got a slow but steady increase in the proportion of the population who could live in cities. Generally, all over Eurasia, from Britain over to Japan, the story is the same. Populations rise. And as populations rise, fewer people and fewer proportion of people work on the land. Now, this had deep cultural effects. What does it mean to move from the country to the city? Well, it's a birth of freedom. You know, you, you, we have kind of this cultural script that, that, that we have some dim access to from when this is happening. You know, you, you, you make good. You escape from the confines of your rural life and go off to the big city where there's great amounts of opportunity. Now, within this story, we 
have to be careful because the person who's moving is not usually the kind of person who we imagine moving. A great deal of the migration war was female. This is because in the cities, you had need of domestic servants. You needed women to do the everyday domestic labor of keeping houses clean, of keeping children fed, of keeping food cooked, of keeping clothing not looking ratty, of sewing up me- uh, uh, torn hems, of, of washing, of, 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 of entertaining. And so there was a huge demand for female labor in cities, greater probably than rural labor, where, where there's a, a bigger premium on strength. And so lots and lots of women moved away from rural areas and into urban areas. And here they had fun. You know, women in the city, young women who who were unconstrained by family uh, uh, expectations, who got, you know, probably more ready money than they'd ever gotten in their entire life. They had fun. They bought awesome clothes. They went to shows. They had premarital sex. They uh, uh, messed around. They, they enjoyed themselves. And they also were exploited. A great deal of these female migrants were exploited either on the road or or uh, 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 in the cities themselves. There was a great deal of, of gradation between female domestic service and sex work. Sometimes women in domestic service were pushed into sex by uh, the people who employed them or the people they lived with. Sometimes female and uh, women in domestic service uh, who lost their jobs would go into sex work as a, a, a way of making ends meet either temporarily or permanently. And sometimes women in sex work were able to transition into positions of cultural power. Now, it's important to note here that, that often this was not a permanent move. Especially in Britain, one in seven people uh, during the early modern period lived in London, but most did not stay there. Most spent a little bit of time learning the London fashion, getting a little bit of money, figuring out how people did it in the big city. And then once they saved money, often they'd move back home and use that money to establish a household for themselves and to get married. This is an important process, and it happens all over the world, all over Eurasia at least. And it's kind of peculiar. You have to wonder, like, why? How does that happen? How does it happen that people all over the world are going through the same thing just because of changes in global trade, because of potatoes, because of better agriculture? Has to wonder, like, does, does, it, does, it, does it make a change in the feeling of life during those centuries? Let's say, you know, late 16th, 17th, and, and, and early 18th centuries. Does it change the way that people feel? I think it does. I think that this is is part of like the root of that weird thing we call modernity, like people moving to the city, getting more freedom, understanding that there is a world outside of the rural home, having a, a, a an opportunity, however constrained, of individually making their own lives. Now, there's a second big movement of population that happens, and this happens in the 19th century. This is the great settlement of the world, or the resettlement of the world, let's say. So here's the, here's the deal. In 1800, about 60% of the world lived in Asia by population. 2.5 lived in the Americas. 2.5%. By 1900, 10% of the world's population lived in the Americas. And only about 55 
lived in Asia. And this was a time during which the world population was exploding. So we get a rapid resettlement of a lot of the world during the 19th century. And to talk about this, we need to to talk about two less than related processes. The first begins with the Columbian Exchange. Remember when European settlers went to the Americas and to other places that had been cut off from Eurasia, they brought with them a gigantic bag of disease. And that bag of disease had massive consequences for the populations of natives in areas that had not been connected to the fertile breeding grounds of Eurasia. You know, so people in uh, North America and in Mexico and in South America and in Australia who had not been connected with 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 the vast steppe lands of Eurasia, suddenly all at once when they encountered Europeans for the first time, got a cocktail of everything that had been brewing in Eurasia since the end of the Ice Age. So smallpox and uh, 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 flus and um, uh, measles and mumps and all of these diseases just came through societies all at once and just decimated them. And we shouldn't just think of this as, as, as kind of like lowering the rate of population by 90%. This also led to massive, you know, societal problems. Imagine if in 100 years, 90% of the people, you know, in a gr- given group died. That ends traditions. It ends uh, social relations. It, 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 it makes things really weird. The second set of factors that explains this massive movement in population is technological. And here we should talk about the two great tastes that go well together of the Industrial Revolution, the chocolate and peanut butter of the Industrial Revolution. This is iron and coal. So over the 18th century, people in Britain got better at burning coal. They started to be able to use coal to do a bunch of different things. Now, the big story that we always tell is the steam engine. People used coal to move things. This was new. This was novel. It was important. They could now use coal to pump. They could now use coal to run machines. But also, what we usually don't talk about, but that's equally important, is that the Industrial Revolution was about people using coal, not just to move stuff, but as key inputs whenever you needed energy. There's a lot of things that people need energy for heating homes, cooking food, but also lots and lots of industrial processes need energy. From manufacturing gunpowder to baking bread to making glass, having coal, being able to be a substitute, was really important. And it was a technological problem, you know? Coal's nasty. It makes like a nasty uh, smoke when you burn it. You can't just like take an industrial process that had been using wood or charcoal and then like jam coal into it. And then, like, be good. Uh, The first glass that was made with coal sucked because it was, like, sulfurous from all the shitty smoke that, that came up. So it was a process. It was a technological process of using coal. And the biggest, most important thing that British people in the 18th century learned how to make with coal was iron. 
We're not going to go into the actual leapfrogging set of inventions about this because we've done it on the podcast before. You can listen to it. It's called The Industrial Revolution in Iron, um, but it is an important story. Now, what this allowed, this combination of steam engines, cheap iron, and cheap energy from coal, eventually was new ways of transport. You know this story. This is a story that you already know. This is the story of the railroads. As in so much, this started out first near coal fields. First, the actual first railroads were uh, not a 19th century story, but an 18th century story where people made tracks uh, to shift heavy uh, uh, loads of coal driven by horses um, in the coal field itself, usually to a canal. But slowly, when people started to be able to perfect the steam engine to get it more and more efficient, steam engines became small enough that they could actually carry their own weight. And this allowed for a new mode of transport that was, you know, not necessarily cheaper, but was importantly more reliable. If you had a, you know, a, 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 a route that was served by horses, as most routes had, or just people walking down the road, as most routes had been served for, you know, the past 4,000 years, then you were often at the, uh, 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 you know, at, at the mercy of the elements. If it rained, your horses couldn't get through the muck. If it snowed, your horses couldn't get through the snow. Your horses might just die. Railroads were different. Because coal doesn't die. I mean, a, an engine might break down. If it rains, well, the, the tracks are still there. If you keep the tracks free of snow, which you can, you don't really have a problem when it snows. Railways were faster and more reliable. And this led to a transportation revolution. But you know the story. What's, what's probably a more interesting story or something more novel is the addition of steamships to this mix. It came online at about the same time using about the same principles, really efficient engines that were able to actually pull their own weight. Now, first, the uh, uh, first steamboats were used only when speed was, you know, really, really important. You get it first in America plying river traffic. Uh, but then slowly over the 19th century, you get a series of innovations in steamboat manufacture that allow them to uh, actually compete on price. So first, you know, let's say you're like in, you know, 1840, you would only use steamboat traffic for, for especially on ocean lines, for stuff that absolutely definitely needed to get there very quickly, like the mail or important people. But because of a series of inventions, steam engines actually became more efficient and cheaper than the old wooden uh, 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 sailboats. This was, you know, the big things were screw propellers rather than uh, uh, paddle wheels, uh, iron hulls, which made the ships lighter, if you'd believe that, that, you know, using iron was lighter than using wood, and recycling condensers that allowed people to uh, uh, keep the fresh water in the, in the steam engine without having to replace it with salt water. Now, what this did was it changed economies and societies everywhere around the world. You had cheap transport everywhere around the world slowly coming online throughout the 19th century. 
Now, this meant that freight cross costs changed dramatically. By the late 19th century, people in Britain could get wool and meat from Australia. Meat from Australia. And buy it cheaper than they could get meat from Britain. You could get a cow from Australia to Britain cheaper than you could get a cow that was grown in Lancaster to Britain. That is insane. That's the modern world. That's globalization. Now, here's where we start to talk about the great age of migration. Because people are kind of like freight goods. We're heavy. We're expensive. Especially when you think that we need food to eat on the long journeys from, from place to place. So as the cost of international shipping decreased, it became increasingly viable for people to go to new lands. It became increasingly viable for people in Scotland or Ireland or, or Italy who were poor and hungry, pushed out of their agricultural lands, to go to a new place. And that new place was often... America. It often was not America. It was also in South Africa or Australia, but a big place was North America. This is the beginning of white settler colonialism, pushed by these two interlocking processes. First, a lot of the great agricultural lands of the Americas and of Australia were depopulated. They did not have the human biomass that had once been there because of the expansion of disease. And the second thing was, it was easy to get to places. It was easier, cheaper, to take you and your family from Ireland to North America. You know, think of your own family history. There's a, a really good chance that if you're an American, a decent part of your family came to America sometime during the second half of the 19th century. I know mine did. Um, one half of my family came from uh, uh, Germany and, and, and Russia to New York. Another half went from Scotland uh, and Norway through Canada over to the Pacific Northwest, all at the same time, all following this promise of, of empty and cheap land, which wasn't empty. It was filled with people. They were just dispossessed. And this happened not just in America, not just in, in places where English people uh, move, but all throughout the world. Uh, there were frontiers in China, frontiers in Russia. There were people moving all over the world. And there was a pattern of migration identified by James Belch of boom, bust, and uh, resource, uh, export rescue. So if you live in the West, like I do, this is the history of your town. I live in San Francisco. San Francisco started out as a boom town. Gold rush came. People came to San Francisco to buy goods, to trade uh, 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 claims on, on mining concessions. People grew very rich. Lots of people moved here. People flooded here. And then, eventually, there was a bust. The boom economy, we should remember, is not necessarily an export economy. Uh, James Bellwich argues that boom economies in the 19th century were usually focused on developing themselves. They were usually focused on the slow and environmentally taxing uh, proposition of building up a city, of making roads, of cutting down trees and building cities, of clearing land and making farms, of taking cows into places that bison used to be and running the cows over everywhere so that you could feed the massive influx of people. 
It was about transforming environments, making them into visions that people back east would love. It was about taking a, a wilderness and making it into a picture postcard. It was about boosting the appeal of land that had been left empty and settling it. But then eventually, after 10 or 15 years of boom, inevitably there would come a bust. The massive cycle of enthusiasm and, and uh, 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 exploitation and bubble economies would eventually pop. San Francisco popped. Chicago popped. Cincinnati popped. They all pop eventually. And this leads to a period of depression where, you know, the population levels off, new people don't come as much anymore, new businesses aren't founded, and eventually people trying to figure out what to do with these cities settle, tend to settle on the same solution, which is to focus on one or two staple goods or manufactured goods or even financial services and export them back home, back east, back to the more settled places, which is what Bellwitch calls export rescue. What's interesting about this is that it we can think of it as a relationship to the environment, that what happens at first is that you get a bunch of activity where people get the low-hanging fruit of development and build up infrastructure. Of they change their 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 landscapes to suit them better, and then eventually there's no more low hanging fruit, and people have to figure out what sort of of activities they need to do that works the best in this new massive uh, global economy. Because when export rescue happens, Chicago's no longer just thinking about Chicago; it has to think about all the other places that feed into the economies of New York. They can't grow wheat and export it to New York if New York can get wheat from, say, Argentina cheaper. They have to find what they have the most comparative advantage to do, and often that is a highly exploitative relationship with the environment. Now, this massive explosion of the population and the massive change to how global trade worked had an effect on the way that the economy and the environment related to each other. It made new kinds of colonial economies all throughout the world. These were distinguished by an unequal division of international labor. These were distinguished by an unequal division of power. The people in New York would always have wheat. They could choose where to get their wheat, wherever it was cheaper. They did not need to wring their hands over whether their decision to buy cheaper Argentinian wheat was going to hurt farmers in, say, Ireland. Now, this also led to part of the division of international labor that we see today, where high-value human capital skills, manufacturing, finance, STEM, science, research, are located in developed quote-unquote economies, the places where the Industrial Revolution happened first. Whereas low-value-added manufacturing and raw material production happens in the rest of the world. Now, we can tell this story from a bunch of different um, Standpoints. We can tell it from a bunch of different colonial commodities. Uh, there's a great book called uh, 
uh, ecology empowered by Corey Ross that does this very thing. And the next little bit of this podcast is going to be drawing very heavily from his book. Now, we could tell it about, say, coffee. Um, when we get, because of this new international system where you can ship bulk goods really cheaply, you get colonial economies trying to find places to grow the great exotic groceries that people love, like coffee. And so colonial governments often encourage the places that they colonize that were, you know, of a suitable uh, 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 latitude and a suitable kind of, of, of ecosystem to grow coffee. Um, you get that get this in in places like Java, why, why we call it Java, Java, uh, places like uh, uh, Malaysia. But there's a problem. When you do that, when you when you shift these uh, colonial economies to this staple crop formation, we say, look, everybody in Java should grow coffee. You change the environment quite radically. Um, the creation of large monocrops of coffee made for the international market caused a weird change in how coffee as a plant worked. Back in, in, in uh, Ethiopia, where coffee is from, it has an endemic parasite called coffee rust. It's a fungus. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't affect too many crops. However, what happened when coffee moved from Ethiopia over to the rest of the world, it didn't go from Ethiopia straight over to Europe. It went through Arabia. Europeans, when they first drank coffee, they weren't drinking it straight from the Ethiopian source. They were drinking coffee that was made in Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula, which is dry. And this dry climate was okay for coffee, bad for coffee rust. And so the first cuttings of plants that Europeans used to supply their colonial economies were free from coffee rust. They didn't have coffee rust. This meant that they grew really, really well, much, much better than they did in Ethiopia. You get an explosion in coffee. This is a pattern, remember, with the Colombian exchange. Often when you get uh, new crops introduced into places where they uh, were not uh, native, they grow much better because they are free from the parasites that usually keep them in check. But when you grow gigantic fields of coffee over thousands of miles, close tooth to jowl with each other, often having very little genetic biodiversity, they are just an open wound ready for infection. Coffee rust uh, eventually made it to the coffee-producing regions of the world, and it decimated coffee plantations. In uh, uh, Ceylon, Sri Lanka, coffee was decimated, replaced by tea. But all those coffee farmers were for, you know, they lost their savings, they uh, had generations of displacement. The colonial economies didn't care. And it's a funny thing with coffee. Uh, we, in the West, we usually drink Arabica coffee, coffee that comes from Arabia. We like the taste, it's, it's, it's light, it's, it's sweet. But in these places where coffee rust is endemic, they discovered that if you wanted to grow coffee, say, for your home, uh, uh, for home use, there was a kind of coffee that survived the coffee rust. We call this robusta coffee. It's robust. It survives the coffee rust. It survives the parasite. And this coffee rust-resistant rust 
coffee doesn't taste very good. But you get this weird thing where a lot of the places on Earth that grow coffee for export, they also grow Robusta coffee alongside it for home use. If you go to Southeast Asia, people usually drink Robusta coffee. It's why the coffee tastes so foul. Uh, often in, in, in Italy, uh, espressos are from Robusta. There's some debate about whether Robusta is, uh, you know, could become a gourmet coffee, whether whether it's a cultural snobbishness to prefer Arabica over Robusta. But it's true that we have an international division of who gets to drink the good coffee. Everybody kind of agrees that Arabica is better. But even though I've barely ever seen a coffee plant, I get to drink it every day, whereas people who actually farm it probably drink Robusta. This is the colonial relationship to the environment. Now, a great way to see this happen is the story of the shift from coal to oil. So Britain in the 18th and 19th century becomes the world's global power because it has a lockdown on coal. Coal is the energy of the new world system. It fuels the factories. It goes onto the steamships and fuels them. It, 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 it heats the world. It fires the railroads, except in places like the West and India where there's lots of, of, of forest. But coal is the heart of the international system. Britain goes out and it finds places that have coal reserves. It hooks them up to railroads and steamships, and it, it makes the world more coal-filled. Countries that try to uh, imitate Britain, like Belgium or Japan, find their own coal fields and exploit them in much the same way that Britain does. But coal is, you know, it's good. It's better than using wood. But in the 19th century, the very late 19th century and early 20th century, you get a new kind of fuel, oil. Oil starts off as being connected to the international economy because it is a light source. People get uh, oil out and they uh, refine it so that you get kerosene, which can burn very cleanly. Uh, it's, it's, it's bright doesn't smoke. It doesn't smell. This is great because before that you had tallow candles which smoked and smelled. If you like the smell of, of, of beef frying, well, if you use tallow candles, that's what your whole house smelled like. Or you used coal gas, which is how Britain lit itself, um, which uh, uh, was often fine as a light source, but it didn't give off a clear light. Or like in America, you used whale oil. But in the 19th century, the whales were getting hunted to extinction, and people started to turn towards kerosene as a, a great way to light their homes. This led to a mild push in colonial areas where people had found oil concessions. Places like Burma. Places like Texas. But then something happened. In the late 19th century, people dis, you know, were experimenting with electricity and eventually were able to make a system where a lot of urban areas were served with uh, uh, elect uh, electric power. The chief use of this was to light houses. Kerosene was great, but it wasn't as good as having electric light that you could just turn a switch on and bam, you have light. And so the people who were exploiting oil had to find a new thing 
to use. And around the same time, colonial governments were eager to defend their colonial possessions that were getting them all of that great raw materials, were thinking about what the next stage of naval development was going to be. Coal was fantastic, but it smoked. You could see a coal steamer a mile away, maybe more than a mile, because it had a plume of black smoke. Coal was also heavy. To have a coal, you'd have a ship go back and forth and, and do patrols, you needed to constantly keep it cold up. And it needed to devote a great portion of its uh, cargo holds to shipping coal. And so some people, including uh, people like Winston Churchill, started to daydream up a new way of powering their naval ships. This was oil. This started off first in uh, 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 Indonesia, where uh, what would become the company Royal Dutch Shell had bad oil, heavy oil, that they couldn't make a lot of kerosene from. And Royal Dutch Shell was a, 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 a combination of, of, of both oil concessions and a shipping company. And they decided to cut their losses and start to use this heavy fuel oil, what we would call fuel oil, uh, to power their ships. Oil is more calorically dense than coal. Per gram, you get more bang for your buck, literally. Also, oil does not smoke. It doesn't smoke as much as coal does. And so you could have these ships that were more stealthy. The big change comes in the 1910s when colonial governments like Britain figure out that they're going to have to switch their massive ships over to oil. This is a problem. Britain has a definite, definite leg up in the coal economy. They have the most coal in the easiest places. They know how to use it. There isn't a lot of oil that they know about in 1910 in Britain. But if the British Navy, the centerpiece of their global power, is going to run on oil, they're going to need to find a place to get oil. Where did they get it from? the Middle East, Persia. They find massive concessions of oil. And they decide that it's in their interest to control these areas. And then we see a test of this thesis, the importance of oil to the war economy with the First World War. America, Britain, they have oil resources that they're able to use. They're able to keep their navies running. Germany does not. And at the end of the First World War, after rushing to put a bunch of new places into production, people look at the economy and they see a new opportunity. The French Senator Henri Beranger said at the end of the First World War, as oil has been the blood of war, so it would be the blood of peace. From 1919 to 1939, global oil production went from 77 million tons 
to 285 million tons. Oil was being used not just for ships, but to make plastics, but to drive cars. And when it came time to look towards the next war, people needed oil. Japan looked at its oil reserves, realized it had only enough for about a year and a half, was buying all its uh, its oil from America. It needed oil. What did it do? Well, there was oil in its backyard in Indonesia. It needed to get there. But the Americans were protecting Indonesia. The Americans had a fleet there that would stop any Japanese uh, uh, ambitions. The fleet was stationed at Pearl Harbor. The Japanese knew that if they got into a war, it would be a big war and they would need to have an independent source of oil. If they didn't get that oil, they would lose the war before it was even begun. Here we see kind of the apotheosis of this colonial economy. To make the world system run, to make the modern economy run, to make your factories go, your cars go, your ships go, to make sure that you're able to keep your people fed, to keep them eating their beef from Australia and their tea from Sri Lanka and their coffee from Brazil, you need oil but you don't have oil necessarily on your backyard. Oil is controlled by colonial governments like America and Britain, who are controlling it because when push comes to shove, they will cut you off. And this generates a kind of logic, logic of war. Anyway, thanks very much for listening to this bumper episode of Making of Historian. Uh, Thank you to Duncan Barton for making... Uh, our image. Thank you to Jonathan Lear for making our theme music. Thank you everybody who's texted me, who's tweeted at me, who has uh, told their friends about the show. It really helps, I think. Uh, if you like it, please do tweet at me. I'm at Mackie Teacher on Twitter. Um, and next week we'll be back about I think we're talking about the Great Acceleration. Although I might be blanking on that. Um, I'll see you next week and hopefully I won't get sick. Hopefully when I talk to you next uh, Monday, I will be talking about how I had such a great and inspired week uh, and I wrote my dissertation and everything's coming up daisies. See you then.